this week on the Backtable Podcast. Part of Laura's effectiveness was she knew what the constraints were that happened in a large company, and she had the processes that she could put in place very quickly. There was no process that we ran at New Wave or Lucent that she hadn't done before on a larger scale. You know, at the end of the day, right, a small company has a really difficult time taking something like New Wave Global because we just don't have the scale. And so I think it becomes like everything at the right time and place. It's a real benefit to the acquiring company and it's a real benefit to the company that you grew. And it's to the point where you can't take it to the next level. And so that's kind of the right time to really start thinking about a process and, you know, where a large company will bring you a tremendous amount of distribution coverage and global coverage. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Innovation Podcast. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and of course, on Backtable.com. This is our next installment in the Backtable Innovation Show, where you're going to hear stories from entrepreneurs who are helping to drive healthcare forward through medtech innovation. This is Brian Hartley as your host this week. I'm a radiologist living in Nashville and co-founder of an early stage imaging company in the pulmonary space. I'm very excited to introduce our special guest this week, Laura King and Dr. Fred Lee. Uh, Laura is a serial entrepreneur and previous CEO of New Wave and current CEO of Elucent Medical. Before New Wave, she was an officer at GE Healthcare, running the interventional cardiology and surgery business with over 5,000 employees. She then led New Wave to a successful exit and is now co-founder and CEO of Elucent Medical. Dr. Lee, we've seen him several times. He's a world-renowned researcher, innovator, and serial entrepreneur as well. Uh, he's the founder of three venture-backed startup companies with a successful exit in New Wave to J&J Ethicon in 2016. Both Fred and Laura, as you heard, are now co-founders with Elucent Medical with the Invisio Navigation System with SmartClip for accurate tumor localization during cancer surgery. So this is part three of our story on New Wave's founding and eventual exit. The last episode, we had Dan Vanderweide and Fred on talking about their trials and tribulations of early startup life, including challenges with their first CEO hire. We learned a lot about how important it is to find the right fit when hiring for key positions and also to structure your equity to include vesting schedules. Today, we're going to learn the next part of the New Wave story, which was when Laura King joined the company as CEO. Uh, with that, great to have you both. Uh, let's dive into it. Excellent. Thanks, Brian. Thank you, Brian. It's great to have you guys. Yeah, thanks, Fred. Great to have you back. So, Laura, why don't we start with you? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background before joining New Wave and kind of how you came to meet Fred and Dan? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess the first thing you should know about me, Brian, is that I am, that I come from a family of very strong women. And my grandmother was actually born in 1907 and has not only oh, wow. an undergraduate degree, but she actually has a master's. Oh, my God. So for a woman of her age, and in fact, she's one of seven and all of her siblings uh, graduated from college, including the three women. So I come from a really strong family background. And I only say that because part of, I think, being an entrepreneur, you have to have, to some extent, this incredible, maybe zeal towards believing that anything is possible. Uh, because if you actually look at the data, right, only 11% of startups make it. And even if you're a repeat entrepreneur like Fred and I are, is 21%. And those aren't, you know, what you would consider great odds. So I think, you know, as you think about backgrounds, you have to have some type of 
zeal towards believing you can accomplish anything. And, and Fred and I share that because he also comes from immigrant grandparents. And I think that tenacity to believe you can do anything is just such an important part of people who are kind of drawn to entrepreneurship. And so my background was GE Healthcare, and I ran a $1.2 billion business, as you said, and I am incredibly thankful for so much that I learned from GE Healthcare and from GE in total. I learned great process. You know, when I think about one of the most important skills I gained there, I had 80 hours of interviewing training, and it's made me a much better interviewer, and people are such a critical part of a successful startup. And, and just gaining that skill and practicing it a lot is something that you really gain from a big company. So I think in, in anything you do in your background, you know, you really bring forward, you know, those experiences and you apply the best to those. But at the end of the day, you know, I had all the external appearances of success, mm -hmm. right? I ran a $1.2 billion business, yep. but I really wasn't involved in my passion. And my passion is really bringing, and I want to say a little bit more disruptive medical mm -hmm. innovation to market. And I say disruptive non-incremental things that have never been done before. And I love doing it with a team that is very cross-functional in nature. And by that, I mean, I think you you see it when you think about Dan, Fred, and I. We have very complementary skills, and we bring the medical, the technical, and the business together. And I think anytime you start to think about becoming an entrepreneur or whether you want to take that leap, especially as a physician, you need to think about where else you have a network towards complementary skills. And so, because at the end of the day, when people ask us about what makes a successful startup, you know, number one, two, and three is people. And then you might get to some other things, but right. it, it is first and foremost about the people. And it actually made me think about a story with Dan Vanderweide very early on in our experience at New Wave, where we were going to hire the head of R&D, which Rick Schafelker is our vice president of engineering, and Dan interviewed him and he said, you know, Rick doesn't have any high frequency microwave energy skills. And I said, exactly. But, you know, he knows how to take a product through the FDA 510K process and has done it about 15 times. And it's just about thinking about how you bring those complementary skills together that I think ultimately determines whether you make it through that success hurdle. Wow. And tell me back, you mentioned something so, all everything you just said is critical. Uh, there was a lot to unpack on that. The first thing you mentioned was you didn't want to just work on incremental improvements and things. Can you explain the difference to our listeners, what the difference between incremental versus maybe a true disruptive innovation or more innovative technologies in general? Because I think it's very important to understand the differences between those two things and what they mean if you're trying to bring them both to market. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a really great distinction, Brian. And another way that I talk about it a lot is I talk about the difference between nice and compelling. And I use those two words when we talk about innovation, because when, when you sit inside a large company, you know, you don't worry about who's going to make payroll, right? Who makes payroll? You don't worry about it. And your business largely has a, usually a pretty good install base. And you also, it's, it, they're big. And so moving that inertia, that center of gravity is really hard. So you can only move it along. So for example, if you have an imaging device, you might, you know, reduce dose by 10%. Yep. Or you might take up DQE, something along mm -hmm. those. And on the flip side, if you sit in the entrepreneurial world and you have to convince someone else to fund your company, you're never going to find a venture capitalist out there who's going to say, wow, I'm going to fund your company if you reduce dose by 5%, 10%. So, you know, when you're inside of a large company, you know, it is lower risk in terms of making payroll. 
and your company has a large install base, you have a really big service business. And so next year's innovation is going to be much more about, you know, a 10% reduction in dose or perhaps an improvement in DQE. Whereas if you're on the external world and you have to go find external funding, people who are looking for typically, you know, they say a 10x cash on cash. Um, the reality is if you get a 6x cash on cash, they're very ecstatic. But you can't get something that's relatively incremental, meaning a small improvement funded by those people. So you need to be looking for things that are what I consider compelling versus nice. So is it nice to get dose reductions? Of course, no one would be against dose reduction. But is someone going to fund and give fund $12 million for you to get a 10% improvement? Probably not. So you need to be looking for things that are more compelling. And then the reality is there's two pieces. One is the fundraising part where you have to have a large enough of addressable market and you have to have something that's compelling. And by that, I to some extent mean disruptive. A bigger change brings more clinical value to market or better healthcare economics or better information that enables physicians to make fundamentally different decisions because they have that information. And all of those are more disruptive. And so as you think through that, you obviously need to, to get the funding, but you also are going to have to take it eventually to market in terms of selling it. And that creates change. And so for something new to come into a hospital or clinical practice has to be compelling for it to come through that front door from a totally unknown company or channel. And that's why I think entrepreneurs inherently need to be more disruptive in terms of the innovations that they're bringing to market. That's so, so important because I think I speak to a lot of physicians. To be honest, I think we, ha we don't have the right uh, metric scale, internal metric to say whether something is disruptive or incremental or I mean, I know I didn't when I first started in this. I had no clue. You know, I was I was working on a new biopsy needle and I, I was like, this is so <laughs> disruptive, you know, and you're like, OK, what? Well, this is a 20 cent commodity um, and I'm improving it by 5 percent. <laughs> but it's something that you truly you have to hear almost from somebody else what disruption means. And I know, Fred, I mean, maybe you have a similar experience before you got it. You were good, though. You jumped right into uh you know, a highly compelling need with an highly compelling solution. I think that's incredible. Uh, I don't think a lot of physicians start off that way. <laughs> no, no. And, and you're giving me too much credit because my first invention or, you know, thought of a device was an improvement in a pulmonary artery catheter when I was a resident that I thought was going to change the world. But when companies looked at it, it was as Laura describes, this was incremental. I mean, how many pulmonary angiograms are done anymore exactly. in the world? And no matter how good your catheter was or, or how incremental the improvement was, there was no market for it. So, okay. um, so no, no, I failed just as much as anybody else has. I, I love it. Thank you for saying that because <laughs> I think that I was a little confused how, how you did that. No, uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. But it's, let me ask you both. Do you think it's, do you think that's part of the pathway that you have to take? Because I don't want to tell listeners, oh, you need to jump straight into going after the biggest need there is, something that's so disruptive that you need to raise $20 million on. Is it almost like a necessity or, or, or not a necessity, but a rite of passage almost to work on some of these lower, more incremental type of innovations before you kind of get the hard knowledge that, okay, like I'm, I'm building a commodity here and uh, no one's going to take this up. Well, I, I can say I, just one comment about Laura's words. I think that I think bear 
you know, bear repeating and, and, and have some application here. And that is that her time at GE Medical, when she was working on, you know, quote, incremental improvements, unquote, to existing devices and things, that experience translated incredibly well into her being an effective CEO of a startup company. Because I think many people have the mental image of a startup CEO as some really kind of off the wall person who, you know, is just a complete disruptor and doesn't follow any rules and that sort of thing. And part of Laura's effectiveness, I believe, was that she had a a world, I mean, she knew what the constraints were that happened in a large company and she had the processes that she could put in place very quickly. There were there was no process that we ran at New Wave or Lucent that she hadn't done before on a larger scale. And and so I I believe that, you know, innovation is one thing on the on the technical side, but for your business leader, I think having kind of a grounded in reality is incredibly important. I mean, I'm the one that had no concept of what reality was. I mean, Dan, you know, had knew what the technical limits of what we were doing are, but what could actually be translated into a product that could be sold, I had no idea what that was and and what the constraints were and where the money was going to come from and all that. And Laura knew all that before she started. And that was incredibly critical. Perfect segue. So Laura, what was your perception of the company? So we know we know what Fred felt. Oh no! <laughs> how, how do you? How did you look at this company coming in? I knew, I guess you weren't really coming in to 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 be CEO. No. You were really kind of you were just looking to help evaluate as a potential investment opportunity. Yeah, Is that correct? I actually was hired by the venture firm to do the diligence on the company. I had no Got no it. intention of joining. Let's be clear. Perfect. Yep. <laughs> Great. And good to hear. And and I think. Uh, so for me, whenever I do a diligence, I team up with an engineering colleague of mine. In this case, it was uh, Richard Parmentier, who most recently has been the technical leader for Oris uh, Robotic. And, you know, we look at, you know, as a good business person would do, we look at the various things that you need to have to have a successful company. So we, we definitely look at the total addressable market, because without that, you're not fundable. We look at the regulatory hurdles. Um, are we going to need a clinical trial? Is it going to be a de novo? Is it going to be a 510K? Is it going to be a PMA? Uh, what's your reimbursement pathway? Are there existing CPT codes? Yes or no? How long does it take you to get them? And then technical risk and then kind of total investment requirements. And so those are the, some of the things that, that you look at. And you also look at, I look a lot at if, if it is a platform opportunity. And in particular for me, I only really take on platform opportunities, meaning that what we're doing can be applicable to multiple clinical scenarios. And in the case of New Wave, we started largely in liver. However, we knew that the lung opportunity, particularly on an endoluminal side, was yep. going to be a reality in the future. And so I always look for things that are platform plays. And that's not the only way you can go. But uh, when I did look at New Wave originally, what I knew is that uh, there was a high clinical need for something that was really effective. What they had estimated for the investment level was way too low and too fast. <laughs> what <laughs> That sounds like just about uh, every pitch deck ever that I've ever written, for sure. <laughs> but also that it really had some platform opportunities. And then one of the most important things for me 
And it's an interesting one as we as we talk about New Wave, because I think that to have real clinical innovation, you have to have a physician that is in the boat with you. And, and I want to say pretty deeply in the boat. This is not like I have one toe in the boat. This is like... What does being in the boat mean? It means they can that they can row, right? Yeah. And in general, it means they are super deep in the clinical practice that you are coming to market first in. So in the case okay. of New Wave, that was Fred because he's obviously a worldwide leader in ablative technologies. In the case of Elucent, which is our current company that's commercializing, uh, we chose to go into the surgical breast space first. And when we did that, we added a, an additional founder, Dr. Lee Wilkie, and she is a breast surgeon. And the reason that's so important is because whether you're the business guy or the engineer, or frankly, a different specialty of medical, it's super important that, to get real innovation and to really meet the medical needs of that specialty. You need someone who every day does that particular specialty. And, and that's one of, of our rules. It's not a rule of a whole lot of startups, but we believe that in order to get real innovation, we have to have someone extremely deep in that clinical expertise. And so um, in the case of New Wave, that was Fred, and it made all the difference. I can tell you some of the trade-offs we made because he was so deep and he knew the space so well. And one of the ones that I'll tell you about is actually uh, the 17-gauge needle. And you know the difference between 15-gauge and 17-gauge is sub-millimeter. It's not ten technically speaking that large, but when you're talking about pneumothorax rates in the lung, it makes a huge difference, right? And so it was one of the things that Fred from the very beginning was super insistent upon that our product had to have a 17 gauge needle application. Would have been way easier to do 15, I can tell you that for sure. But the reality is because he was so insistent and because he was a founder and had he had power. You have to you have to give up power. The engineering has to give up power to let the physician influence design. And you have to listen because that makes all the difference in the lung. People are not going to put a 15 gauge needle in lung. And that's one of those things that unless you're in the space, you don't know. And I think it's just a really good example for us of where having that multidisciplinary specialties between business, technical and medical. And then even within technical, we had a technical founder Dan, that you met last podcast, and Rick Schafelka, who led our engineering. Very different skill sets, both incredibly important and valuable as we think about the success of the company. And so you you came in, you did your due diligence, you, and then how did you become <laughs> CEO? Uh, yeah, I you know it's funny because I knew I was leaving GE because I I needed to move towards medical innovation. It was my passion. Uh, I thought I was going to go run a nice you know five hundred million dollar company private equity backed. And uh, anyways, but, you know, every once in a while, you find that incredible intersection of people and purpose. And that was new way for me. We had a really strong alignment of values between Dan, Fred and I, and between, frankly, our Series A lead, which was Scott Button from Venture Investors. And that alignment becomes really important, um, particularly when things aren't going well. When things go well, you know, values alignment is a nice to have. When things don't go well, you really need values alignment around what's important, what are your priorities. And for all of us, it's about patient safety first and creating a clinical difference that matters. And I hate to say it, but like, you know, I don't know where a great exit falls, but probably for most of us, you know, it falls further down the list. And if you do all those other things right, you end up with a great outcome and a great exit. 
But from just a straight values perspective, I would say, as you talk about your co-founders and your top leaders and your investors, that alignment of values is probably the single most important thing you need to have. Brian, let me give you an example of how Laura actually, I mean, she, she really lived that and they sound like nice words, but when things get tough, it's really important. And I'll give you one anecdote that happened. And this is, this is a true story. So uh, one day I was over at the company and I said, you know, the, the device was being developed and it was getting close to clinical use. And we knew that, that UW is going to be the first clinical site. And uh, I had set up a big conflict of interest management plan here at the university. And so I knew I was going to be involved doing cases fairly early. And so one day I walked into Laura's office and I said, so Laura, I just want to make sure that we are aligned here. And that is that if I think that a patient is better served with a different technology than microwave, like radiofrequency or cryoablation or, or something else, then that's what I'm going to do. And, and I said, I just, you know me well enough to know that, that I'm pretty stubborn about that kind of thing. And, and that's what I'm going to do. And Laura looked at me and she goes, well, I wouldn't have expected anything else. And I'm like, oh man, bingo, you're the right person. Then she, uh, and, and she said, because your credibility in the field is more important than you being a, a salesperson for our device. I mean, you know, obviously we want you to use the device and be happy with it and all that, but, but you need to be the scientific and medical leader here. And so you have to have credibility. But then as I was walking out the door, you know, I just said that, that if I think something else is the thing to be used, then that's what I'm going to do. And as I was, as I turned to walk out the door, she says, kind of not under her breath, but a little sotto voce, she says, but my job is to make sure you don't need to use anything else. <laughs> Incredible. So I thought that was, that was a, a perfect, you know, I yep. knew that we were totally lied then. Oh, that's so good. Okay. And then you, you, you were on board. That, that was it. You were just, I, I, I mean, who asked you to be CEO, I guess. Yeah, Laura, point? tell how a little that, bit more of the story. How, it's uh, it's a yeah, little more juicy I mean, than, just, than it, that. Because there's a leap that happened here. Yeah, well, I, I, you know, that's an interesting question, Fred. I, I think Scott said he would fund the company if I stayed a CEO. There you go. <laughs> that's, that's pretty much, uh, pretty much on it. We, uh, we knew. You're that, hired. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, uh, as you heard from, from the previous podcast with Dan, we knew that we knew enough to know we needed a great CEO. And yep. through the diligence process, which was not just, I mean, diligence is not just checking a couple of boxes <laughs> or something. I mean, Laura. Yeah, what does that deep. mean? Can you, maybe yeah, you Laura, both tell them about diligence. Tell us. Yeah, it's an interesting thing because in the movies, it always happens at the back of a napkin. So. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and when do you do diligence? What, what, what is what is the point of diligence? In the, is, it's fundraising, correct? But when you're fundraising, uh, VCs, venture investors will go through diligence. They will. And basically, they are testing every hypothesis you have in your business plan. So they're testing your addressable market. They're seeing if what you are proposing is really clinically relevant to the clinical specialty. They're hiring outside reimbursement experts to make sure that what you said is the reimbursement strategy is in fact the reimbursement strategy. And then it's typically, you know, one of the most important parts that gets done is intellectual property diligence. And they typically hire an outside legal firm to ensure that you both have freedom to operate, meaning you're not going to be infringing on anyone else's patents and then the strength of your patents. 
Uh, So that's kind of an an outside external assessment that typically happens in any kind of diligence. And then there's kind of everything in between from audited financials to, you know, do you have proprietary invention and assignment agreements for every employee, right? There's everything from the mundane to the, you know, to the more, I mean, the intellectual property is typically a, a pretty big piece of it. And it's an interesting one because when I talk to physicians about intellectual property, I usually get the context that they think the idea or the intellectual property is somehow 90% of the value of the company. Really glad you brought that up. <laughs> yes. Can, let's, let's talk about that because I was probably in that camp early on. And then now that I'm starting to run a small company, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's... Yeah, and, and don't get me... I mean, it's all important. There's no way it's, it's all important, but you know, so much of your life goes into building a company. Yeah. So it, it definitely is important, especially when you are talking about fundraising in both your freedom to operate and in the fact that we'll have some barriers to entry for other companies because they're typically going to put in for a medical device 10 to 20 million to begin with. And then when you're all done, you're probably going to be somewhere between 50 and 100 million. So it definitely plays a really a big role, but there's also some other vehicles that people should think about. And one of the ones that I think a lot about is a trade secret. And the reason you use trade secrets is for those kinds of things that you don't want to publish. And so uh, we definitely had some of the gas cooling algorithms for New Wave were trade secreted. Uh, in my current co- in our current company, Elucent Medical, we have a, a fair amount of trade secrets around the algorithm for the surgical navigation, and that can also be um, incredibly strategic. However, all the best intellectual property, if you don't have the right people that can take it through the fight to the FDA, can build a good quality system. Um, frankly, that can then sell the product, the intellectual property becomes a pretty small part of that whole conversation. And so by the time you actually get to a fully formed company, you know, it's, it's, it's an important piece, but there is so much more that goes into a company in, in terms of um, what is the supply chain strategy, right? And early on in New Wave, we had a, a supply chain operations leader by the name of Eric Kleiss. And just deciding what gets outsourced and what gets insourced. And in our particular case, we insourced the probes because the probe manufacturing was so critically important. And, you know, that sounds like a simple item, but again, it's about the things that create significant competitive advantage for you as a company and how you bring it to market is what you want to insource. And the things that are more commodity-like, like a, you know, a circuit board, you will probably want to outsource with the circuit board company because it's not very strategic to put a full circuit board manufacturing in a startup. And so just all of those things together continue to build and layer on each other from a what creates value. So the intellectual property you have to spend the money on to make sure that you're well protected. I will tell you that having a, a terrific intellectual property attorney is really important. And I would say sometimes people don't think about this, but what I think about a lot with an intellectual property attorney is one that can help you with uh, where to spend your money and what creates value because you can spend easily one to two million dollars a year on intellectual property patent filings. And oh my gosh, yeah. And figuring out the right three hundred thousand dollars to spend is is a really important part of that. And a really good IP attorney can help you with that as well as the actual filings themselves. I had Laura, no idea. tell Brian about some <laughs> of our um, kind of travails with intellectual property and owning ideas and things. We had a couple yeah. of 
incidents that happened about who owned what kind of thing. Yeah. So there's just some really good best practices that you can follow as a startup, particularly around if uh, someone wants to come to you with an idea, you know, it's always a best practice to have two people attend the meeting and to make really clear minutes following the meeting. Because we did have the case where a physician came to us, presented an idea to us, and uh, it's an idea that we had already actually, interestingly enough, one of our physician founders, Paul Lasky, had actually already put a patent in on five years earlier. But the person actually came back to us later when we brought that to market and said, you stole my idea, right? And so it's it's a tough one. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, fortunately for us, you know, Paul had, we had filed a patent with Paul five years earlier. So we had really good documented evidence. But we had another one where, you know, we really just, the fact that we had more than one person at the meeting and had documented it clearly becomes really important because I do think that physicians think that the idea is 99% of the value and it's an important piece, but you can, you really do need to employ some best practices. And I even oftentimes send minutes afterwards about what was disclosed just for that very reason, because you don't want to be sideways with anybody and you want to, if someone did come with a brand new idea, you do want to give them credit and you want to license that from them. But if they didn't, you won't want to get sideways with that person. Right. And you don't have to deal with that if, if you have agreements in place, like correct consulting agreements with people because they've signed their IP to you mm-hmm. or your company because you're paying them, you're correct. compensating them, whether it's equity or whether it's money. But in situations where somebody says, hey, I've got a cool idea or you tell them, I think what happens a lot that I found is you tell somebody what you're working on and then all of a sudden people just start saying, oh, I thought about, especially if you're a physician, oh, I thought about this. Couldn't you try this, this, and this? Or what about this, this, and this? And I don't, I don't think a lot of us realize that that is starting the invention process. And, you know, once they start having those conversations, you almost need to be like, hey, you know, hey, we're, we're, (laughs) we can't really get, get into this because of this reason. Or you say something like we've, we've already patented that, but you have to kind of make it clear in the moment and you need to be aware of that for sure, because I've definitely been around situations where later on it can become ugly. Yeah. I think the other thing that um, is different between physicians and business people is business people read the patents from the claims first and other people read the beginning of the patent, which has a lot of right. wonderful context, but is not right. is not the patent. <laughs> it's not the value. <laughs> right. Right. And so you really have to think about what is actually patentable and... uh in that piece. Yeah. Ryan, another uh, incident that happened to us was mm-hmm. uh, uh, several years, even before the company had started, there was an industry representative had come and visited our lab kind of on a academic sort of mission. And uh, there were no notes or minutes or anything kept of, of his visit. I thought it was just sort of a friendly sort of thing. And then fast forward a couple of years and we're just about ready to launch the product which, um, as you know, is a gas-cooled microwave system, which is quite unique. Well, it turns out that the gas cooling um, had come from one of my friends, uh, Peter Littrip, who's well-known in the ablation space. And he and I were having dinner in Washington, D.C. once. And, you know, he was asking how it's going and, and uh, with a company. And he said, you know, you should really consider uh, gas cooling the device. Well, Peter's not just anybody, you know, here's, this is one of the world's leaders in ablation and he uh, works with a physicist who really understands gases, gases and expansion of gases and that kind of thing. 
So this is not just a fly-by-night physician, you know, that's throwing something against the wall and seeing what sticks. And so, of course, and I've known Peter for many years, he was a fellow with my father. And so I said, okay, you know what? We got to bring you to Madison and I need you to meet Laura. And he came to Madison and met Laura and those two discussed about, you know, what his, Laura said, I want you as a consultant and signed him up for consulting and he was compensated and all that stuff. And, um, and then he helped us uh, with the gas cooling over the ensuing year or two. And so that was a very successful use of a really smart person who had some specialized knowledge in the space to help us advance the technology. So now fast forward to right before launch and this other guy who had visited my lab on a whim uh, several years ago, sends me an email that is, you know, fairly accusatory email. And I thought he was joking. And, uh, you know, he said, I thought you were an honest person and this and that. And I'm like, ha ha, what are you talking about? You know? And, um, it came out that he claimed to have invented the gas cooling idea and that it was oh, his man. idea. And, and I'm thinking like, wow, where did this come from? And so I talked to Laura and she did a patent search. And of course this guy had no patents in the space. So he had no real claim to this. Second is that, and, and, and then we kept kind of getting some fairly hostile, fairly accusatory emails. I think he was at, at maybe somebody's advice was, was putting some sort of record in place or something. And finally we got kind of tired of it. And Laura's like, okay, we'll email him back and say, that if we wanted to steal it, we would have just stolen it. We wouldn't have paid Peter a lot of money to help us <laughs> build this thing. We would have just stolen it for, for free if it was, if that's what we, yeah. if that's who we were and that's what we really wanted to do. And so in this case, because Laura had um, treated Peter fairly and had brought him in as a consultant and, you know, had a market-based compensation plan for him um, that everybody agreed was fair you know, that was protective in a way um, because we weren't trying to steal something. We weren't trying to, you know, go outside of our core area of expertise and, and invent this. And, and, and I think that is a one way that you can protect yourself is put these clear, you know, agreements in place as, as you mentioned, and that's what we did with Peter. Yeah, that's great advice. And, you know, also just above and beyond the context here of the very, cognizant of who you talk to about inventing and, and what your what your structure is between those people i mean if they're not if they don't have an agreement with you you need to be very careful um or with your company not with you but with your company um but above and beyond that just the little landmines that you've listed like three or four landmines that happen that happened like throughout the company and, and i'm sure there were about 50 more that <laughs> come up and these little moments can just like hijack you for weeks probably when you're talking about this and that's something that i think a lot of people don't realize when they're founding a company is the stress level of all of these little things that just happen randomly you don't see them coming they're like little you know they are they're like landmines yeah so how do you how do you deal with that laura and how common are situations like this well uh, i i say that every company has a messy middle and then sometimes you have like five messy middles because you always have them okay. and you don't know what they're going to be when you start, uh, but you always have them. What does that mean? You know, it's just something that you don't expect that derails you for a period of time, right? Um, and I think everybody thinks it's going to be the technical thing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it, it's not. 
you know, oftentimes it is perhaps it might be a new something new on the market. It might be uh, someone you thought was going to be part of your team that you have figured out that you just don't have an alignment of values with and you have to part ways with. And I think you, you know, you just have to, you know, if you go back to the fundamentals of having shared values, then you can make it through all of those things. And, you know, one of the things that I think is really important, especially when you're talking about middle innovation, is that those first cases. So uh, we happen to have a very uh, outstanding uh, chief customer officer. Her name's Ginger Sands, and she always uh, leads the, the clinical side of our first cases. And when you're doing something really innovative, you have to really set the stage with your partners that are doing the first cases, and you have to, have to take every safety precaution possible. So typically that means doing the technique both ways, the way they used to do it, and with your device both to set those expectations accordingly and having, you know, backup systems, having an ultrasound, having, you know, multiple ways to get something done. Because what you know for sure is even when you take all the precautions and you do all of the testing you can possibly think of, there is real life. <laughs> and setting those expectations accordingly that if, if you are talking with someone who's gonna be the very first physician, in our case, it was Dr. Lewis Henshaw, uh, about, you know, making sure we spent all the time training with him. But we didn't get the system there, I think, Fred, till what, four in the morning for first case? Yeah, you mm. guys were looking pretty tired <laughs> that morning. <laughs> oh, that's stressful. <laughs> uh, and, and, and so, you know, when you think about it, you know, becoming an entrepreneur, and of course, Ginger had done, she had built the relationship with Marcy, the, the nurse, and, you know, with Lisa on the, you know, she had been running a lot of the ablation program at that point. And building with all those people so that everybody is in the loop. They understand what's occurring that day, why it's occurring and, you know, and doing everything you possibly can to be as ready. And then making sure that when you do have something, and unfortunately for us, our first case went very well with New Wave and uh, we didn't have any issues, but, you know, eventually something will happen and making sure that you can step back from that. And as a team, having us thoughtfulness and bring in people who have orthogonal views to provide you perspective. And um, there's one time in particular when we had a site that was doing a lung ablation and they made a certain claim about the way the system had performed, which wasn't logical to us from a, a technical perspective. But I can tell you where I was. I can tell you where Fred was. I can tell you where Ginger and Rick were. And, you know, we got on the phone. We took a look at the data. And what we decided to do in that messy middle moment was to actually ask an external physician who is a you know, world-leading expert in lung ablations to, to take a, a, an orthogonal look, an outside perspective at what happened during that case and give us his professional written write-up. And I think you know, in, in all those times, what you have to do is not be defensive because nothing's perfect. And at the same time, you have to be really open to new information, but you have to take a very thoughtful way in which you're going to go about tackling that problem. Because if you take it defensively, you're not going to get anywhere. Fighting with your customers is never a winning strategy. Fighting with your investors is never a winning strategy, right? Fighting with your employees is never a winning strategy, right? And so I think in all those cases, for us, when we ended up in those, you know, those, those messy middles, right, which occur on a regular basis, you know, having the ability to come together and to look at, at the information we have 
to have a, a, a candid dialogue about what new information we need or what perspective we need to move forward is, is really important. And having that candor to be able to have a very meaningful conversation is the difference between being successful and not successful. And the data I would share with you on that is, Brian, if I was to sell you something and the product went flawlessly, it met all of your expectations, your likelihood to repurchase my product is about 83%. If um, you buy my product and you have an issue that you communicate to me and I solve to your satisfaction in your time frame, your likelihood to repurchase actually jumps to about 94%. So what I tell the team a lot is that it's not that we can never have problems. A, we can never have big problems that are fundamental to the patient care, but we have to listen and we have to be able to respond to your feedback because your feedback's different than Fred's feedback, right? And so as you go through the process, you get better and better the more people you have as part of your team, as part of your village raising your company. And the more you can listen, the better your product will become. And then you, what ends up happening is if you listen effectively and you respond well, then your leadership just grows over time. Like the gap between you and the next closest capable device um, becomes even larger. And so I actually think that it is about how you start the company, but it's also about the culture you build and how you choose to work with your physicians and frankly, your hospital systems both. Now, that's uh, everything you said was incredible there. I think great learning points. Let's let's talk. It sounds like when you joined New Wave, uh, Fred had mentioned that you, he said, great people just started showing up. <laughs> that's what I remember Fred saying. <laughs> and so I want to hear your basically your process on, on, on hiring. What are you, what are you looking for? What were your priorities when you first came in? You probably saw, okay, got a great physician, got a, a great technical guy. Who, who'd you need? Yes. So I had, we had our VP of engineering, Rick Schaffelker, pre-sold. Let's just say that. And, okay. you know, there's nothing like hiring people that you've worked Before with. you came, basically. Well, I had almost. started, but, but we hadn't funded the company yet. And so okay. I told him, you know, don't quit your day job till we actually have cash today. It's an important feature. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. uh, but we had actually, uh, he and I had worked together previously. And so there's, there's no substitute for having worked together before, for sure. So Rick was our first hire. Uh, critically important, Dan Kassetner was our head of regulatory and quality. And in a medical device, that's a really important role. And you need it early. And because if you try and... I once acquired a company that shall be nameless at this point when I was at GE, but I didn't do enough diligence on how well they had done their product development and they hadn't had quality processes from the beginning. And if you don't have customer requirements that flow down to design requirements and you're able to demonstrate those to the FDA, then you have to go risk mitigate all of that as an acquiring company. And in today's environment, most acquirers are not willing to do that. So building good quality and regulatory from the beginning is, is critically important. Uh, so I largely for, I largely tapped from my network, but when you get the company to be larger headcounts, like, you know, when you get into the, you know, we had about a hundred employees, I think at the time of the sale of New Wave, I have about we have wow. about 50 now for Elucent. I interview for demonstrated evidence. And if you look at all of the data around interviewing, the only statistically relevant predictor of future success is past success. 
And it doesn't have to be in the same thing. But when you sit down and interview someone, you're looking for those tangible demonstrated evidence that they're capable of doing whatever that is, a problem solving, a design, all of those kinds of things. And so what I look for is demonstrated evidence. And you're also looking for people who've worked closely with those people so that when you get a reference, it's not, gee, John's a good guy and he loves the Packers, right? I know lots of great guys named John who love the Packers, right? But <laughs> but it's about, you know, is it someone who can really bring skills to the table that enable you to move the company forward? And while in a big company, that's important. In a small company without that, you sink because you only have so many oars and you have to get across the lake. And if you don't have everybody rowing, you actually will just sink in the middle of the lake. So there's a lot of people we passed on because they would use words like, I oversaw, I approved, I... We don't have any jobs like that in a startup. Mm. And Brian, I'd, I'd like to, to follow up on one point that Laura made about people that you worked with before. Now, just because you work with somebody before doesn't mean that, the, and if they weren't successful, that doesn't mean they're going to be successful this time. I, I don't mean that. I mean, one of the things that I think is common that I've seen with Laura and I saw with Dan Sullivan, who followed Laura as the leader at New Wave and is is leading New Wave inside J&J right now. So Dan Sullivan and Mike Blue, who's the CEO of Histosonics, is um, they, all three of them have said to me that what you do is, you know, business leaders will move from company to company. And as business leaders get more mature and they've had more experiences, they have a group of people that kind of move with them from various companies. And at each time, a business leader moves moves companies, they tr kind of take the, they, they, there's a winnowing and sifting process that's going on and and they take the best of the best with them. So for example, I mean, Dan Sullivan has taken Mike Blue with him uh, at several different companies. Um, Laura has taken Ginger and and she's taken me along too, which is kind of nice. <laughs> um, but she, she's taken Ginger with her, you know, from, from New Wave. Um, our sales leader at Elucent, is a New Wave alum that we knew was very successful. Um, Jeremy Tootin, we knew he was very successful there. Brian Clark was another very successful commercial uh, leader at New Wave and has come with us to Lucent also. So there's kind of this pyramid that happens, I think. And and maybe maybe I've got that wrong, Laura, but you kind of look for the best people when you, at many of your previous stops, and then you're pretty sure what they can do. And you, yeah. and, and then, there's no surprises when they come on board because you've seen them do it before and, and they, they do it again. Yeah, absolutely. And then they tend to do the same, right? So they're then taking the best of their networks and bringing those people. And so, you know, having a strong and diverse network across the medical industry becomes really important. And I, I do want to follow up on one thing that, that Fred talked about in terms of, of Dan Sullivan, Mike Blue, Jeremy Tootin, Brian Clark. I think so many times people underestimate the commercialization. And now I will say it's been particularly hard in a pandemic. <laughs> uh, yep. uh, however, even not in a pandemic, it is hard. And it has to do with creating change management, right? Physicians are spend their whole life perfecting what they're really good at. And creating that level of change is takes a it, it's a very real skill set. And then on the concurrent, you know, what they have to do both on is they have to then be able to navigate the hospital 
administration side of acquisition and adoption. And it is no small task and you really do need the very best talent when you go to the commercialization stages because it is hard to move through those obstacles. And people don't think of them at the same level they think about the technical obstacles, but they're every bit as hard and you need every bit as strong a talent in that part of the phase of the company. Yeah, it's often, I think it's an, you don't often look at the commercialization side of things when you're in an early company, but it's, it's obviously it's a, it's a critical thing. Now I want to get to some important points and maybe uh, you can share with us, what were some of the biggest challenges with the company uh, before you guys were acquired? Well, I mean, it's, I, I'll, I'll just jump in here um, because I, I, I have a different point of view than, than Laura, obviously, what, what some of the bigger challenges were. And I, I just want to go back a little bit and say that we were talking about the very beginning of the company and, and how Ginger would create relationships with physicians and things. And I think that was critically important. Um, when, if something's going to fail, it often becomes obvious at the very beginning. And you know, there's certain expectations that get set by physicians before a device is available. And something that's new, physicians often think that it's magic. And, you know, when they turn the button on, something magically happens and, and the tumor disappears in a puff of smoke and that's the end of it. And, you know, I think that's one of the things about building relationships, especially early. And, and as Laura mentioned, Ginger is so good at this, is that you can, you can ride out some of those early problems. And, and I'm fortunate that I've got three great partners that kind of did firsts for New Wave. You heard Lewis Hinshaw, Tim Zemlevich, and Meg Lubner all did kind of first cases with us. And then outside of UW, Sloan Kettering with Steve Solomon, Kosi Sophocleus, they were the first people outside of UW to do cases. And I think Ginger uh, built relationships with each of them to help overcome some of the inevitable problems that happened because there, there were some problems at the beginning, as, as Laura was saying. Now, in retrospect, you know, we know the device works really well. We use it routinely. I mean, like every day and there are very few problems with it. But at the beginning, those little things get so magnified and having the relationships at the beginning is super, super important. So this gets to your question, Brian, about kind of some of the challenges. And it's going from that level where Laura and Ginger knew every single physician that was doing this procedure to scaling this to becoming, you know, a a worldwide business. And that's not easy. And, and I'll let Laura talk about that, but Laura, wouldn't you say that that might have been kind of the, the challenges that we, we went through the beating were very big and we were nervous about it and all that, but kind of going from that very early infant stage to, you know, a, a multinational large company, that's really hard also. Yeah, it is really and, hard. And maybe harder. And, and I think it was a little harder in the new waves side because the physician we were impacting often didn't control the patient, right? And so mm -hmm, understanding yeah. those dynamics well became an additional hurdle. So, and it wasn't a procedure that's done, you know, 500 times a, a year, right? Except at a few large sites. And so uh, you really had to, to, to be very strategic. You also had to put a lot of resource into converting a site. And I think that's, you know, true everywhere. But particularly with New Wave, that was challenging. I will say one of the other lessons learned, I would say, when you ask the question about challenging, and we actually, it was one of the things we did better with Elucent, is we had our Series A co-led by two venture firms with Elucent. 
And that has a couple of advantages. One is you have more, more funding at the table, but also you have two people who've been on the whole journey with you and understand the choices and trade-offs that you as a board and as a team have made throughout the, the series A to the series C to the exit, right? And so having your investment co-led by two firms, I think is a best practice and something I, uh, we did with Lucent that we didn't do with New Wave. So I think that was, that always makes it more challenging if there's not two people at the table already. And I think the more people you can get at the table that, again, you know, we talk about oars in the water rowing. <laughs> yep. You know, those are the kinds of people and it could be a family office or it could be, you know, we have an amazing uh, set of uh, individuals on our cap table at New Wave and also on our cap table at Elucent. And for us, you know, when we get into a difficult situation, so many times someone who is connected with us and in some way vested with us, and I don't mean literally vesting like as stock options, but nah. like vested as in they have a stake in us, can help find someone who can help move us through that stage or provide us expertise. Laura, why don't you, could, could you tell the listeners a little bit about venture capitalists and what their role is after the investment? Because I think many of our listeners might believe that the venture capitalists, the only thing that they bring is, is a bunch of money to the table. But yeah. we were fortunate. We had some great venture capital companies and individuals, Scott Button, Mike Wasserman, um, you know, they, they rode with us and, you know, there's ups and downs and, and, and that kind of stuff. But they, they didn't just dump money and run. Those guys, they, they, as Laura was saying, they were rowing. Yeah. And, uh, and Kirk Nielsen came in as well. Kirk Nielsen from Versant, right? Yeah. And, and so, you know, many times, um, and I think it's especially important when you get to the part of the process that they have done a thousand times, which you haven't done, which is an exit or how to run an investment banking process. And yes, they bring money to the table. They also bring a lot of connections. And they can help you with, um, for sure, especially the ones that are already on your cap table can help you with, you know, terms and equity amounts and benchmarks and compensation committees. And there's so many places that they can play important roles. And again, I think the most important thing you're going to find is that you have good alignment. So if, you know, you have people that want, you know, everyone who's on in the Series B to be able to participate in the Series C, right? That's kind of a fundamental philosophical. Yeah. And if that's important to you and your founder team and your current investors, then you choose a firm where that's a shared value. And uh, they, but they do bring a, a lot of expertise, especially when you're starting to talk about strategics. And, you know, there's just so many places where they can, they know someone who knows someone or they can bring in expertise. And certainly on the investment banking side, that's not something that, as you might imagine from my GE life, I brought much expertise through. And they've done it a bunch of times. And, uh, you know, what are the better private equity firms and why? And, you know, what demonstrated behaviors have they seen from different firms that they're on boards with and things like that? So, you know, they definitely are integral and you want to keep them as informed and as up to date as you can to ensure that they are, you know, part of the solution with you. Okay. Yeah, that's obviously very important to have good partners. And but of course, everybody wants to see, you know, they're on there also to see a return on investment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and when it comes down, <laughs> when it comes down to potentially being acquired, I think I just want to get this last question in is really what does 
what does it take to be acquired? I mean, I think everybody sees it and they're like, oh, that's the the unicorn out there. Be, you know, to be acquired is the greatest part of it. But what does it actually take? I mean, how much work is involved? What do you need <laughs> to get? Where do you need to get your company uh, before an acquisition happens? Well, I think each one's a little bit different. On average, um, a medical device venture backed has is eight years from series A to exit. That's kind of the average eight to nine years. So, you know, you better have a good decade of your life that you want to devote towards this. <laughs> wow. I think um, wow. Fred and I are going to be 157 by the time we finish our current ideas. <laughs> <laughs> well, series A, it, kind of, it can take a while to get to a series A with a medical device <laughs> company to begin with. Yeah, I, I know exactly. that we're not at a series A. Yeah, it definitely yeah. can. And Brian, th- there's, there's very few firms now that are doing series A investments even. And, yeah, and they so, want later stage. That's right. They yeah. want later stage revenue companies. And um, and so it's even as you were saying, just to kind of get the clock ticking can be really hard. So, you know, there's there's huge amounts of luck involved too. And and mm-hmm. I, I would just throw in there, um, you know, I, I lived through the acquisition of New Wave, which was, I, I would say there's some incredible roller coasters, ups and downs. You know, we... Uh, we we had Dan Sullivan that was kind of leading the acquisition at that time, and he had done it many times before. And one of the things that that he taught me, which I didn't really understand, is that when you're starting to get interest from outside companies looking to acquire your company, you know you may you may not be the best person to kind of to sell your own company. I mean, you're a medical you know, you're selling medical devices, you're not selling companies. Right. And so, you know, you need a realtor, so to speak, in, in a way, if, if things start getting mm. a little bit heated and it starts getting real, you might think about bringing in an expert that their job is to sell a company, like, like a realtor would sell your house. And, and that's what Laura was just talking about a minute ago, having bankers be kind of the middle person that can inform the world that yes, you are up for sale, and I mean, I didn't know any of this when, when, when this started. And, yeah. and as I watched this happen, it became more and more obvious that the sale of a company is much like the sale of a house. And, you know, you can do it yourself if you want to, but you're not a pro and <laughs> the, the risks can be, uh, can be really, there can be a real downside. And so what happens is that oftentimes the companies will hire a banker, which can be very pricey. And you can put incentives in place for what that banker is going to be paid, depending on all kinds of things, including, you know, how long it took to sell the company and, and what the purchase price was or whatever. You can have whatever contract you want with the bankers and they're your representatives. So they go out and they kind of, at at some point, you've gotten indications from the market that you might be a takeover target. And so when you pull the trigger on a banker, their job is to go out and to discuss the opportunity with the big companies. So in our case, it was, you know, just the usual large medical device companies. You know, you might be, you know, do you guys have any interest in in New Wave? And and here's a situation, you know, it's just like selling a house. They give a little prospectus and, and all this. And then once that starts, then it becomes a little crazy. And it was really fun watching the bankers. Well, fun, I say in retrospect, at the time it wasn't so fun, but... Uh, <laughs> You know, watching the bankers in action and watching Dan in action. And Mike Blue is our commercial leader at that time. And he was very involved with this as Ginger was and Dan Kasednar. 
And to watch them kind of come together and these large companies would come in and they'd bring teams of like 30 people into the company and they would go through every possible document that there is. Oh my gosh. Um, the, com the company has put up a big data room electronically. They've gone through every single process document. So all those things that Laura was talking about that your regulatory person had been working on for the last decade, they're looking at every single one of those documents in, in excruciating detail. They're doing the same thing that the venture companies are doing when there's due diligence and they go out and talk to a whole bunch of experts in the field and they hire, um, they hire intellectual property lawyers. And so for like, for weeks you have, you know, hundreds of people going through every aspect of your company. Eventually, hopefully this ends up with a, an offer on the table and the bankers then can look at the different offers and they can now do the same thing that a realtor does when they're managing multiple offers on a house. And they can give feedback to the, to the companies, you know, well, your offer's not good enough, whatever. And, um, and the companies might modify their offer. And finally, at the last possible minute, the board has to decide whether they're going to take one of these offers or not and sign the, sign the paper. And, and I have to say the last thing that happened was that the, the board members, and so I had to do this, um, was you have to resign from the board. And that's, that's a really strange feeling when you're, uh, you're signing this paper, you know, you've, you've been working on this thing for the last decade and, and you have to resign from Sign the board. Sign your baby away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of a strange feeling, but, um, you know, in the end for us, it worked out just fine. And, and so I think, you know, it was a win-win for, for J&J. And I think it was a win-win for the founders and the employees. Laura and Dan Sullivan had set up so that every one of our employees was had stock in the company. And oh, so, awesome. yeah, I think that was really important. And, and I just give them a lot of credit for that because the employees then ended up having some benefit too. It wasn't just, you know, the founders and the officers of the company. I think that, that was also a reflection. Too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's a reflection of the values of, of our leaders. And so I give them quite a bit of credit for that. Everybody's got to be rowing the boat. I feel like I'm going to start using <laughs> that now. I keep, I keep thinking about lakes and rowing uh, and everything. Now, and, and, and you know, at the end of the day, right, a small company has a really difficult time taking something like New Wave Global because we just don't have the scale. And so I think it becomes like everything at the right time and place. It's a real benefit to the acquiring company and it's a real benefit to the company that you grew and it's you're it's to the point where you can't take it to the next level. And so that's kind of the right time to really start thinking about a process and you know, where a large company will bring you a tremendous amount of distribution coverage and global coverage. So wow. It's just, you know, and some and that you know, usually that that means you need to be at kind of at or above 30 million of revenue, but you know, it's obviously different for different spaces and you know, where people are thinking about and how strategic something is to their broader individual portfolios. But, you know, that's usually... Or if it's like a bolt-on a bolt on right. or a, a tuck-in. I've learned that language yeah. now, I guess, yeah. from yeah. <laughs> talking and, to some other successful entrepreneurs. And, and, you know, for some of your physicians, um, I was just reflecting back. You know, we've talked kind of about the, the medical device where you want to take it all the way through the, the, yeah, the broader, exactly. you know, external funding, all of those kinds of things. There also is the kind of thing that people can do individually. And I was thinking about this, Fred, because I was thinking about Scott Reeder and the MRI phantoms, right? Mm -hmm. And they have a really nice little business that 
doesn't need a Scott's one of my partners, by the way, for, for those, <laughs> gotcha. uh, okay. yep. those who don't, don't know him. He, he do, it doesn't need external funding. Like MRI, specialized MRI phantoms is not a huge market, right? But they've built right. a really nice little business that they're probably going to own and it has a real benefit. They could grow it kind of very much to their pace. And so there, there is always an opportunity if you think about, um, I don't know if you've read this book called The Long Tail. But in any sort of scenario, there's room for these businesses out underneath the long tail because there's been so much segmentation of our markets. Um, if you think about the NBC, CBS to the number of channels we have today, right? Especially that long tail does have room for entrepreneurs who want to do something smaller. So what we described in the New Wave story is something where we did go bigger. We raised $50 million. You know, we went, took it all the way through. I don't want to ever discourage people from thinking about some of those smaller businesses that are under that long tail that can also be really meaningful for them and for whatever clinical practice that they're impacting. And those exist as well and are terrific companies. So, you know, I think I just want to put that in context of there's not only one way to do this. What we kind of took you through today was more the, you know, go big scenario and or go home right and yeah. but but there are so many other little other little great businesses that people but you just have to recognize when you do those right those aren't the ones that are going to have a big exit and that's okay just don't put a ton into them expecting to get a ton out if it doesn't have a big market as an example yeah it's expectations mm -hmm. i think that's that's yes. perfect and I, I think that's so many times you hear about these big exits and its positions before i started getting into this world you're like, oh, well, shouldn't we go after that? Isn't that, you know, but you don't realize. And that's part of why we do these podcasts. And that's just to show, shine a light on the process of what it really takes to get a, a true innovative medical device like New Waves through to market, through commercialization into sale. How much effort it is, how many people are involved, how much time it is, how much money it is, and how much stress it is <laughs> to do this. You know, I mean, it's it, it sounds like, you know, if you're successful, even if you're not, it can be one of the most rewarding things you've ever done. But you just have to have your eyes open, I think, a little bit when you go after this. And, you know, I think you and your family will be much happier because <laughs> because your eyes were open <laughs> going into it. Absolutely. Well, look, uh, thank you both so much uh, for this. I would like to go through a summary and I would like to say it's brief, but it's not brief because I've been typing this whole time. So yeah, very, I'll try to shorten this summary, but please interrupt me if I say something that, that you think needs an edit. So first point, to be an entrepreneur, you have to have zeal and really believe that anything is possible. You said a couple statistics, Laura, 11% uh, uh, success rate for first time founders, and it just goes up to 21% success rate for second time founders. Those are incredible numbers. Know it before you get into it. Uh, but also if you're the type of person who doesn't care and wants to do it anyway, because you're that positive, maybe that's a good sign. Next hiring is so important. Look for complementary skills. Uh, you said hiring is number one, two, and three most important thing is the people. So when hiring interview for demonstrative relevance, you said, and I think that's really important. It just means have they done what they say they're going to do, not just overseen it or, uh, you know, hired somebody who did it actually done it themselves and because the only predictor of future success is past success uh, i agree with that but it is a bit, a bit of a chicken in the egg problem for people who are trying to get out and do their own thing i guess it means you have to pull yourself up on your own at first 
Next is incremental versus a true innovation. So to raise external funding for a true innovation takes a lot of money and VCs are looking for a 6 to 10x return on investment. You can't really get there uh, unless you have a serious innovation. So if you're doing a modification to a PA catheter, sorry, Fred, or a (laughs) biopsy device, sorry, Brian, you know, you're not going to raise VC funding. And that's what it's going to take because you're going to need, I don't know, you guys raised $50 million. I think even for a small medical device, you're going to be raising in the several $5 million range for one that's just a very small one. So the return has to be there. Uh, So you just need to understand the difference between an incremental innovation and a true innovation. Caveat there, when you're starting, it's often an incremental innovation that you start with. Yeah, Uh, That's what I've seen, at least when I speak with a lot of other physicians and innovators. They always start somewhere smaller. They learn from it. They leverage it to their next next experience. Just know the difference. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And as as Laura was saying that you know, we have room for virtually any advances in, in medical devices. And it's just the path that we took was kind of your classic venture capitalist through to exit pathway. But but there are many other pathways that can be rewarding both, you know, from patient care point of view and financial, as long as you scale it correctly and you have the right expectations. Well, you mentioned the MRI phantom business uh, that your partner has. And That's maybe a business that doesn't require that and is very rewarding. We've just drawn the distinction that you should try to understand what you're getting into before you go in. But also, I guess it's important to say that, you know, maybe the MRI phantom doesn't require, and I have no idea, does it require regulatory? I mean, is it being sold in any way? uh, Does it have to be FDA cleared? I don't know. Yeah. And, you know, Scott Reeder is, is one of the world's most decorated MRI scientists and physicians, and he identified this very important kind of niche business that needed to be filled. And he made an assessment. I mean, he was really sharp and, and his wife is a, a, Jean Britton is a very smart business person and who's known Laura actually for many years. And the three of them kind of put their heads together and knew that this was, you know, this is an excellent business possibility that was likely not going to need venture funding the regulatory aspects of it, I, I think there are some regulatory aspects of it, but they aren't as extreme as a, you know, delivering a couple hundred watts into the human body. And so it's something that they could do themselves. And, uh, you know, it's, again, it, it met a very important niche and it scaled to what they wanted to put into it. And so those kind of businesses are are brilliant. And uh, and in many ways, I, I'm envious <laughs> of, of that. I mean- Yeah, no, we, I totally- yeah. <laughs> We left some our guts on the floor at New Wave, that's for sure. Yes. And I think Scott is too, but, you know, he didn't have to mortgage his house to start the business. And there you go. And, you know, it, it was just a different level of, of risk and, and, uh, and involvement. Yeah. And so there, there were many days where we envied them. <laughs> and that goes to alignment. That's the next one. Alignment of people and purpose and alignment of values, which you, you mentioned. And that's critical because when things don't go right, you really need, you have to have that alignment of values uh, on your team. And if your team isn't aligned that this is a small business versus a large business or the pathway you're going to take, you're going to, and that includes your family too, that you're going to have some serious conflicts, put it that way. Next, you mentioned due diligence. I think we just got to say this because this is important. Uh, Due diligence is an external outside assessment, whether it's due diligence for funding or due diligence for being acquired. People are going to go deep on your business. What is your addressable market, your reimbursement pathway? 
you're going to have your intellectual property. People are going to be looking into. So you have to have all that buttoned up before you go and raise funding, especially. And of course, when you're going to be acquired, the same process applies. If you're going to, if you're inventing with other people, this is very important. Make sure that you have documents in place, uh, that you document what you talked about and that everybody's on the same page because later on down the road, it can come to bite you in the rear. Uh, somebody can come in and say, oh, I invented that. And you say, wait, what? No, we, we, not at all. Here's the documentation we have. Uh, and that's something that happens a lot. And it's something that only comes to bite you years down the road. I really want to mention this part. Every company has a messy middle uh, that you mentioned, Laura. And I love that because I think I've seen it with everybody I've interviewed. There's been some messy middle, whether something new on the market comes out, you have team issues, something you don't expect that derails you. Uh, you can't get defensive during the mess of middle, messy middle, and you've got to be a good listener and respond well during those times to be an effective leader. Medical devices take a long time. Series A to exit, eight to nine years. Uh, that's incredible. That's just a stat to leave <laughs> you guys there with. Uh, so I would like to thank you both for this incredible discussion. You had an incredible run, and I know our listeners are going to learn a lot from this. So we thank you both so much. Thanks, Brian. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Brian. It was enjoyable and it was really, I appreciate your summary. It really hit home some of the things that, you know, I think we need to always think about every day as we become better leaders. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Backtable Innovation on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable Innovation is produced and hosted by Brian Hartley, Aaron Fritz, and Eric Yamaker. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from Ann Dang. Social media and PR by Chi Dang. And Dana Parker. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.